Amen. Would you take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Haggai, Haggai chapter 1. I was informed last week that uh, the photograph that made its way into the PowerPoint uh, helped a certain someone stay awake, I mean uh, really pay attention to the message. I won't tell you who that is, I don't want to embarrass John Wilhite or anything, um, but I made sure there's one in there just for you, it's coming, all right? So maybe the anticipation will help you stay, I mean, uh, you know, keep engaged with the message tonight, so it's coming. Haggai chapter 1, we're going to pick up a reading tonight in verse number 7, which is the second paragraph in Haggai's first message, his first sermon uh, that he's delivering to the remnant kingdom there in Israel. Uh, they had returned from captivity to the city of Jerusalem 16 years prior uh, to this book, to this message. God had moved on the heart of, of King Cyrus uh, to rebuild a house of worship for the one true God in, in Jerusalem. And uh, he had uh, made provision uh, for that, uh, that to take place. And so under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and Joshua, you'll see both of those names tonight, Zerubbabel being the governor, the political leader, and Joshua being the religious leader, the high priest. And with their leadership, under their leadership, close to 50,000 of the Jewish people, of God's people, had returned to the city of Jerusalem. And immediately when they returned, they began setting up an altar to God. We read the story last week in the book of Ezra, and they began the task of rebuilding. And right on cue, as they had a desire to put God first and, and to, to make His agenda their agenda, to have those proper priorities, right away as soon as they did that, the enemies of God began frustrating the effort to rebuild the temple. Eventually they would appeal to the new administration after King Cyrus, and that uh, new administration would listen to their slanderous smear campaign that they had uh, uh, um, that they had attempted, and the rebuilding was, um, was squashed. It was put to rest. These men accused the people of attempting to stir up a rebellion um, against the empire. And of course, that was not true in the least. Um, the, the very command, the decree to rebuild, we realize it came from God. But as far as humanly speaking, it came from King Cyrus. And so what they were what they were um, attempting to pin on God's people was not true, but it didn't matter. The opposition finally had what it needed. It had the, the official document, and they ran uh, to the, the Temple Mount that day, and we got it. This from the king. You need to stop building, and that's exactly what took place. They stopped building. And the temple site sat there, completely abandoned, unfinished, uncared for, for the next 16 years, while the people turned their focus to themselves, to the comfort of their own existence, to building a good life for themselves. They lived in beautifully finished homes. The Bible calls them, or God calls them, sealed houses. All the finishing touches, just everything in its place, everything you could possibly want, they had they lived with that in mind. They, they were fulfilling their desires and they became completely focused on living for themselves and their agenda while God's agenda and God's house sat neglected kind of on the shelf, collecting dust. They had plenty of time to better their own lives, but somehow it was not time. It wasn't time to give attention to God's house. And as a result, as we looked at last week, God frustrated their selfish pursuits. And instead of being satisfied with all that they were accumulating for themselves, instead of that filling the void in their lives, they were filled with agitation, with dissatisfaction, with frustration. And all the while... This was not just unfortunate circumstances. The reason for that emptiness, the reason for that frustration and agitation was God. It was God Himself who was trying to get their attention, trying to get them to consider their ways. 
And so last week we saw the prophet Haggai deliver the word of the Lord and challenge the people with the harsh reality that their priorities were completely out of alignment. They were out of whack. They needed to consider their ways. They, they missed getting the first button in the first buttonhole, getting the first priority established to what it needed to be, and therefore all the other priorities of life flowing from that. They missed that, and so everything from there on out was messed up, was not what it needed to be. So tonight we're going to look at the second half of that message, and it kind of looks like it's the same, but I think there's a different emphasis that starts here with a new paragraph in verse number 7. Where God says, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste. And ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Lord, would you help us tonight, help me tonight, to be able to deliver your word faithfully and in a way that is true to what you have preserved for us, but also in a way that would touch our hearts. We would see not only the message that you had for your people, the remnant kingdom of Israel, but also the message for your people in this place, Lehigh Valley Baptist Church tonight. I pray that we would see that clearly and that we would see what you want us to do in response to your word. Bless this time, we pray, and the words that are spoken, may they be exactly what you want to be said. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, talk is cheap? Talk is cheap. When we're talking about our priorities, like we did last week, last Sunday night, we talk about God being the top priority in our lives. Isn't it incredibly easy to give lip service to putting God first? I mean, we're Christians, right? We know how to... We know how to talk the talk. We know that God is supposed to be the most important thing in our life. We know that our relationship with God ought to be the number one priority as we live our lives. We know how to say it, but it is something completely different to actually do it. As we saw last week, it's it's very easy to allow a priority to become the priority and to thereby mess up um, how we ought to be living. And in the end, what happens is we wind up living for ourselves with a fake plastic veneer of spirituality sort of layered on top of it. And we can say, look, I'm doing this because God's my top priority when that's not what we're doing at all. It's really, I'm the top priority. I just found a way to to wallpaper over it and make it look like it's something spiritual and it's really just all about me. So this idea of talking about the the, the right priorities and and saying that, that we ought to have the right priorities and that God ought to be first is different than how it is displayed in our lives. 
And so we ask ourselves the question, oh, how can we tell? We all want, I mean, if you're, a, if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, I believe there's a desire in your heart. There ought to be. If there's not, I think there's a problem. But there's a desire in your heart that you want to put your Savior first. That you want God to be the top priority in your life. That's a desire that as a Christian you ought to have. And I trust you have that desire tonight. But then how can we tell whether or not that is actually true? How can we tell whether or not we are living out that which we are speaking out? That which we are saying? And I think we can answer that question with one word. The word is obedience. Obedience. And tonight we're going to follow along with the prophet this evening and talk about considering our obedience. Obedience really is the very best way to show that we believe. Some of you know that kid's song. Perhaps they're even singing it tonight down in class. It is the best way to show that we believe. Action is the key. Doing it immediately. Joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Obedience is the external display of the internal priorities. Literally, obedience is our priority list on display. It is showing the world, this is what I believe is important. It is our obedience. This is why Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? See, these individuals, they, they could talk a good game. They talked about how God was the number one priority in their life. They talked about how their relationship with God uh, was really the, the, the number one thing in their life. But they weren't even doing that which the Lord, Jesus, was telling them to do. And Jesus was calling this out, saying, uh, there's something wrong here. There's something not right here. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Master? And not do the things which I say. We can only truly, as we considered last week, we can only truly consider our priorities by considering our obedience. So this is, a, this is a way that we can test ourselves. And in this passage, God's going to point out, this was a way that, that, that the people could test themselves. They were being confronted with the fact that God wasn't the top priority. Okay, how can we fix this? How can we get it right? And so God lays out for them the importance of obedience. Consider your obedience. And tonight, first of all, we look at verses 7 and 8. We see the call for obedience. There's a call for obedience in these two verses. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. I don't want to pass this up. This is something that we see often in the prophets, and specifically here in Haggai. But in verse number 7, I want you to notice Thus saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Notice the commander of this obedience. It is the Lord of hosts. And the idea of the, the Lord of hosts is that He is the commander. He is the one in charge of the hosts of heaven, of the armies of heaven. He is the ultimate supreme ruler and commander. And he's the one saying, this is what I want you to do. He is the commander. He is the one giving this charge. And, and that, that phrase, the Lord of hosts, it's used five times just in chapter one here of Haggai, 14 times in the entire book. And I think the reminder is that, that, that we need to consider the fact that these commands are not just suggestions. They're not just, it'd be really nice if you would do this. Uh, uh, I would feel really loved if you would do this for me. But it is the Lord of hosts the commander of heaven, saying, I've got some things that I would like you to do. I've got some things that you need to do. He is the commander. He's the Lord of hosts. But you notice what he commands in verse number seven. Consider your ways. We've heard this before, haven't we? Consider your ways. Just a few verses prior in verse five. Consider your ways. In fact, the idea of consideration 
is used four times throughout the book in almost all of Haggai's messages. Consider. And that idea of consider means to take some time to set your heart on something. Not just think about it per se, but actually think about it to the point where it actually affects you to the deepest part of your soul, to, to even to your emotions. It has an impact. Give some serious, serious thought to this. We pointed out Proverbs 4 and verse 26. Ponder the path of your feet. Think about where you are. See, just like our priorities in this area of obedience, it must always be examined. It must always be considered. It must always be given some thought. Where am I at? What is God commanding me to do? What do I know God wants me to do that I'm not doing? Are are there specific things that I need to be involved in? And and really, uh, this is the idea of walking in the Spirit. I know I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but the very idea of walking in the Spirit is taking steps of obedience throughout our day in our lives in obedience to what God wants us to do. We approach situations and we say, God, what do you want me to do? God, you know, I'm, I'm running into this person on the, way, on the way to work, a crazy driver. God, how do you want me to respond? God, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, the, the traffic's not flowing today. How do you want me to respond? God, the, the boss is being mean to me today. God, how do you want me to respond? My kids are acting up. Lord, how do you want me to respond? This is walking in the Spirit. This is the consideration why we need to take a step back and say, Am I being obedient to God? Because my obedience is the display of my priorities. I can think about this is my priority list. This is number one. This is number two. This is number three. This is number four. You can, you can uh, uh, speak that all you want. But what you do is actually what the priorities are. Your obedience displays what your priorities are. So consider. There's no autopilot possible here there's no cruise control and when we get there when we find ourselves just living in autopilot and cruise control there's some issues that are laying underneath the surface that we need to deal with we need to be careful of that the consideration of obedience but I like this and I don't know why verse 8 is my favorite verse in I think the whole book it just is Because it represents for us the the clarity, the clarity of obedience, or maybe we could put it better this way, the simplicity of obedience. And we think about the people, I'm sure they had all sorts of nuanced and complicated reasons and rationales as to why it wasn't quite time yet to build God's house and why it was simply too difficult at this time. That They were too busy. They had stuff going on. They had reasons why it was just too complicated. You got to understand the situation. You got to understand the difficulties. That's why, you know, it's not taking place. And the whole time, God doesn't see it that way. They've got all of these reasons why now is not the time to obey. All of these rationales that they've cooked up in their own minds. And God doesn't see it that way. Not at all. He says, here's how I see it. This is what you need to do. This is the clarity, the simplicity of obedience. Let me break it down for you. Let me give you a three-point outline, a three-point sermon. No poem, just three points. And the three points are simply this. Go, Bring and build. Think about that. Go. Go to the mountain. Go to the mountain. Take the first step. Now, there really wasn't any work or labor involved in going to the mountain. It was literally, there's the mountain. Let's go. Take a step. Take the initial step. Overcome the spiritual inertia that overcomes us at times. We're, we're just content. We're just happy the way things are. Take a step of faith and start the process of obedience. Go to the mountain. Embrace the need for change. Because if we're not changing, we're not growing. And if we're not growing, we're not where God wants us to be. And we may claim, oh, no one's perfect and I'm not perfect. But in your life, you are living as if you have arrived and you are perfect. 
Embrace the need for change. All right, it's time to go. I'm going to take the step. I'm going to go to the mountain. Go. The second command, point number two in God's sermon is bring wood. Go to the mountain and bring wood. This idea of bringing wood, you're preparing, chopping down some trees, you're preparing the, nece- the necessary materials for construction. All right, you need wood in order to build. And so you couldn't go to Home Depot, not that you'd want to buy lumber from Home Depot anyway, uh, but you couldn't go to Home Depot and pick up some lumber. You had to go and cut it down yourself. So God says, go to the mountain and bring some wood. Prepare the, the necessary materials. Labor, and get this now, labor in the preparation before you see the visible results. See, there's no building going on when you're cutting down wood. Trees going down, lumber laying on the ground. There's no, uh, I guess there is some visible progress, but as far as the project itself, what they were doing was not necessarily affecting the project itself, but it was in preparation for the project itself. And this can be difficult. I like to do things where I see visible results. I actually enjoy, at times, cleaning when I can see some visible results. When I can see the before and after, you know? In the, in the, uh, the auto detailing world, they do the, the, the masking tape, you know, to get the two panels. You know, before, after. If you can see the results, you can see visibly, this is what's happening. Boy, that's encouraging. Boy, you want to continue on. Let, let's do this whole thing. Let's get it all exactly the way it needs to be. But then there's those times where you labor and it's all just preparation. Maybe in New Testament terminology, it's, it's plowing and planting. Oh, the harvest is fun. The harvest is fun. I've, I've had a garden and planted things that I don't even like. I don't even want to eat at all. But the harvest is fun. All right, you, you enjoy that side of things, but that doesn't happen without planting. That doesn't happen without preparation of the ground. And God says, go to the mountain and do some preparation. Cut down some wood. Get some things ready. Go, bring, and then build. See the project through to the end, all the way to the end. Go, bring, and build. In other words, God is laying out the simplicity Uh, Take the practical steps that are necessary in order to live in obedience to me. And so often we overcomplicate obedience to the point that it becomes a college level course on all of the intricate details as, as to what God wants us to do and how and what strategy. I mean, just take the next step that God wants you to take. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you can tie your brain up in pretzel knots thinking about all the things that need to take place and all the things that that need to happen. Obey the gospel. That's why God uses that word. It's practical. It's measurable. Take the next step. And if you say, well, you know, I really need to I really need some help in that. Well, the next practical step is letting your voice be heard, getting some help with that. Kind of like, I really, should, I really should be a witness. I really should be involved in reaching people with the gospel. Well, this go to the mountain and bring wood involves getting up from our seat when, we're, when we dismiss and going to the foyer and picking up a tract. It's got to start there. But we overcomplicate obedience and we have paralysis by analysis. Have you ever heard that phrase? We're busy analyzing all of these different things and we're missing the simple things that God has already given to us. Parents, we can do this as well in raising our kids. We've got every book from every Christian leader possible on our bookshelf. We've read it all, and yet the simple things that God clearly lays out in His Word, we're not doing. And we're wondering, why isn't this working? God's given you the simple plan. You need to follow it. Do you know Parents, do you know what God's Word clearly says are your priorities and what you ought to be doing? And are you doing them? Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for helpful books and materials from 
from uh, you know, uh, those that have gone on before or those with some wisdom to share because I know they, they, they share scriptural principles. But at the end of the day, a lot of that is just man's ideas about what God says. We need to first master what God says. Do the simple things first. Take the, that simple step. What is next? And maybe the what is next is go to the mountain. It doesn't sound very glamorous. It doesn't sound, it, doesn't, it lacks the wow factor. You know, the New Year's resolution. Woo, you're going to do that? Wow. It's just like, get up and go. How do you do that? How do you prepare for that? How do you get ready? Just go. Go to the mountain. Bring wood. Build my house. Here's a refreshing thing in verse number eight. Not only is we see the commander of obedience, the Lord of hosts, our need to consider our hearts and our obedience, evaluate ourselves, the clarity that God brings in our lives, doing the simple things. But then he follows up with the covenants of obedience. There's some promises here, aren't there? Some special promises. Go up to the mountain, bring wood, build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. And... I will be glorified, saith the Lord. What a promise this is. Child of God, you realize when you take a simple step of obedience, no matter how little it might be, that God is in heaven taking pleasure in you and what you're doing. Now, that idea of taking pleasure is he's looking on favorably. I mean, consider that for a moment. Because... Our obedience as uh, limited, um, three-dimensional, lower beings of the earth, and I don't know how to describe it, in comparison to you know, God in heaven who's not limited by any of those things, our obedience to an authority like that should be something that is expected. It should be something that's normal. It is something that is appropriate, and really it should stop right there. Jesus said we are but unprofitable servants in his, his parable. We've done that which is our duty to do. That's the reality of it. But then God says, if you obey me, yeah, it's your duty to do. But if you do so, you will please me. I will look favor, favorably on it. I will take pleasure in your obedience. What child, what son does not want to make his father specifically, but his parents, what child doesn't want to make them happy? Make them pleased. And if you're a child of God, I mean, you should have that desire to make God happy, to make Him pleased. You want Him to look favorably upon your life. How do you do that? Obedience. God tells you, obey me and I'll... I'll look favorably upon you. I will take pleasure in your obedience and I will be glorified. I'll be honored. I'll be, I'll be given weight. You will glorify me by your obedience. Sometimes we think of worship and glorifying God. All right, in order to do that, we need to have big, grand speeches with all of these big words. We need to, you know, spend time in prayer. And, oh, thou holy God of heaven. Is there anything wrong with that? No, not at all. We should think about and, and maybe stretch ourselves as far as the understanding of how great God is. But I'm going to tell you tonight, you can use all of those fancy words. You can be like the Pharisee and have the grand old prayer. Look at how much I worship God and your life stinks. You're saying my priority is to worship and glorify God, but you're being disobedient to God. Square that circle. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Your obedience belies your priorities. Or we should say your lack of obedience does. So we don't glorify God necessarily in grand prayers or speeches. We glorify God by obeying Him. And living by what he says. That ultimately, that's how we glorify God. And so this is a promise. If you obey me, you will glorify me. That ought to be a motivation for God's people. I want that in my life. I, I, I want him to be pleased. I want him to be glorified. How do I do that? Obey him. 
Do what he tells you to do. The call for obedience. And then he goes in verses 9 through 11, and he's already talked about this once, but he goes back to this idea, and that is the consequences of disobedience. We saw this in verse number 6, but he kind of goes back to that topic and adds a little bit more flavor and color to it. But he says in verse 9, "Ye look for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought, and verse 11 is just talking about the, um, the scope of the drought that God brought. What's, what, what, what's being spoken of here is the, the consequences of disobedience. Because you as God's people have refused to obey, this is what's happening. And God is claiming credit. You know, sometimes we say, well, that's just coincidence. You know, it's bad luck, so to speak. And God's like, no, 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 this is not bad luck. It's me. Let me put my signature on this. I did this. I'm trying to get your attention. Notice what God does. He, he, did, uh, he gives us a summary of the consequences in verse 9. He just said, you looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And I like that word, lo. That means, look at it. You looked for much. I've got these grand plans of what I am going to accomplish. I've got the three-step plan to wealth. I've got, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, uh, to get to the next level in, in, my, in my, my work life. I'm gonna, my, my business is going to reach the next metric. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You looked for much. And look at what you got. Go ahead. Look at it. Low. Look at it. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? No, it came to little, didn't it? You look for much and lo, it came to little. There's frustration, there's dissatisfaction, there's disappointment, there's unhappiness. And is it any surprise? This is all about you and nothing about me. The summary of the consequences. And then we've already touched on this, but excuse me, the source of the consequences. He said, you brought it home. When you brought it home, I did blow upon it. What a, what a picture this is. God blew upon it. So just picture someone who's got plans, he's got ambitions, he's got things he wants to accomplish, and he's hitting the grindstone, putting all sorts of time and labor and effort to do what he wants to do. He's a big planner, big goals. We're going to conquer this. We're going to really be something. All of this labor, all of this effort, and God just goes, Whew. you see the, the con, so much effort, and all it takes is a breath of God, and yeah, that didn't come to much. It didn't amount to much. I put in all of this time, all of this labor in it, and in reality, at the end of the day, I mean, I can paint it with a spiritual veneer if I want it, but at the end of the day, it's all about me. And God says, I give grace to the humble, but I resist the proud, so... And what is there to show for it? I don't think, you know, some of the ambitions of the people were necessarily wrong ambitions. Maybe they were good ambitions. Maybe they were right ambitions. But at the end of the day, it was all about them and none about God. And God says, I'm not pleased with that. It's all about you. I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble. I did blow upon it. And the reason is because of mine house. It's because of my house. What's important to me at the end of the day is not important to you. You don't care about what I care about. You don't care about what's important to me. In fact, you run every man to your own house. Your priority is you and your house, not me and my house. This is why. When you go and accomplish perhaps even all of the good plans that you have, when you go about to do that, it comes to nothing. You say, this is not working. I wonder why. Could it be that this is all you and none of him? 
Could it be? Consider your obedience. Take some time. I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying, consider it. Think about it. This is what God was saying to his people. He was saying, this is me. I'm doing this. Because your priority, your agenda is not my agenda. The source of the consequences. And then he gives the scope of the consequences in verse 10 and 11. God closed heaven. What a picture that is. God restricted, God restrained heaven. And I think about every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights. Everything good in my life came from my God, from from heaven. It's not about me. I didn't produce it. This is the reality of things. Everything good in my life came from Him. If I shut off heaven, man, that's a dangerous place to be. God says, I'm literally turning off the spigot in heaven. No dew, no rain. Therefore, he mentions the earth there at uh, the beginning of verse 10. The earth is stayed from her fruit. No fruit either. Now, this was, this was all part of the covenant that God made with his people. If you read in Deuteronomy chapter 27 through chapter 30, there was a covenant of the land that God gave to his people. In other words, you bless me, I bless you. You curse me, I curse you. This is, this is the agreement that we have. This is the covenant, the promise that we have. So all of this goes in with that, and this is why God is doing what he's doing. He told the people this is what he was going to do, and he's fulfilling his end of the bargain. But you notice the scope of the consequences, the scope of this, this famine that God is sending. It's not just the land, but it's also the mountains. And if you live in a dry area, um, the mountains serve as sort of water storage for the land. If you have a dry year, you can always look to the mountains. There's snow up on the mountains. When the summer comes, that snow will melt. It'll flow down. We'll be okay. Except now there's a drought in the land and there's also a drought in the mountains. There's no snowpack melting. There's no relief that's coming. Not just the corn, but also the wine and the oil. And in case we're missing anything, he says, all that the ground bringeth forth, everything. Not just upon men, but upon cattle. And not just upon men and cattle, but all of the labor of the hands. Everything. You know, if you belong to God, if you're one of God's children, there's no escaping the consequences of disobedience. You cannot run from God. Jonah found that out. He says, I think I can disobey God and get away with it. And guess what? God came knocking on his door. Or the fish he was in. Whatever. God came knocking. God knew where Jonah was. God found him. This is the scope of the consequences. And you know what? When we signed up, when we were saved, when we submitted ourselves, we repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. This is part of being a son of God. Chastisement of God. Consequences for disobedience. And God just laying it out, saying, this, this is me. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm the reason why this is happening. The consequences of, di- of disobedience. And that would be kind of a downer to end, but I like how this passage just continues on in verse number 12, and we get to see the carrying out of obedience. I mean, so many of God's prophets, they, they prophesied and they labored and they spoke God's message and they, they, they preached, thus saith the Lord, and this is what God wants, this is what God wants you to do, and they were ignored, they were laughed at, they were mocked, nobody paid attention to them. I mean, the majority of God's prophets, this was the case, but in Haggai, not only was this not the case, but Haggai got to see it all. He got to see it all happen. The people, including the leaders of the people, they received the prophecy of Haggai as, as it says there in, I believe it's verse 12, they, they, they received the prophecy of Haggai as the voice of the Lord their God. They received what he said as a message from that the Lord their God had sent. And I like that phrase, the Lord their God. It's repeated twice in verse 12 and the verses following. Because obedience really is an evidence, it's a proof of the fact that we truly belong to Him. So when they heard their God saying, you're not valuing me, you're not prioritizing me, 
You're not considering your ways. You're not doing what I asked you to do, what I told you to do. You're not fulfilling your purpose in coming to the land in the first place. It immediately got their attention. This is a compliment to the people. We see something about the the scope of their their obedience. We saw the scope of their consequences. But now the scope of their obedience... Boy, it starts and he, he it lays it all out in verse 12. Starts with Zerubbabel and Joshua and then all the remnants, everyone. And I like this in Ezra chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And I like this phrase. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. Oh, I like that. So they're all getting busy. And Haggai and Zechariah is the, the other prophet that's being spoken of here. They weren't just the ones, you need to get to work. These are all the things you need to do. And, and you're not pleasing God. And they're not just, you know, barking orders at them. They're saying, we need to do this together. And there's Zerubbabel and there's the high priest. I mean, he's got a special position. Should he really be out there building? But no, he is. I'm getting involved in this. And the high priest is there. There's the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And there's all the people. What a, I mean, that's a wonderful, wonderful picture. Everybody is rolling up their sleeves and getting busy obeying God. We need to do what God has told us to do. The scope of their obedience. But you'll notice, maybe you, maybe you missed it there in verse number 12. The end of verse 12. After it lays this out, Zerubbabel obeys, Joshua obeys. All the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. This is the the sibling to their obedience. What came part and parcel with obedience was the fear of God. The people did fear before the Lord. They honored the Lord. They revered the Lord. They respected the Lord, which tells us that in their former state while giving lip service to being the people of God, the reality was they didn't fear God. Having all of the right words and doing a lot of the right things, not all of the right things, obviously, but a lot of the right things, they didn't really fear the Lord. Because disobedience is not compatible with the fear of the Lord. They cannot go together. If there's an area in your life you know This is what God wants me to do. It is clear, and you are not doing it. You can talk about how you fear the Lord all you want till you're blue in the face. You don't fear the Lord. That's the reality. When there's an area in my life where God's clearly shown me, this is what I want you to do, and I say, I don't want to do that. It's too uncomfortable. I don't like that. There's too much cost. Can we do it another way? The reality is, By my disobedience, I am displaying the fact that I don't fear God. It's as simple as that. It's not real complicated. Disobedience is not compatible with the fear of the Lord. But these people, when they they got busy obeying, boy, the fear of the Lord went right along with it. They they, they, they were like inseparable. And fear of the Lord and obedience are inseparable. They, They go together. They both are a valuable part of our lives that we've got to consider our ways, kind of check up on ourselves. Do I really fear the Lord? If I do, there's going to be some obedience and obedience in areas that are perhaps not comfortable for me. One more thing tonight. We kind of gone through and we've seen the commander of obedience or the call for obedience from the commander himself. We've seen the consequences of disobedience, the carrying out of Obedience, but then number four, the compensation for obedience. What a blessing to read in verses 13 through 15. The message that comes to Haggai. He speaks in verse 13, the Lord's messenger and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you. I am with you, saith the Lord. The first reward or compensation for their obedience was God's presence with them. Now, I understand God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. But think about this idea of I'm with you 
in this aspect, in this regard. It's kind of like saying when, when, uh, when a team is, is winning and you say, I'm with them. That's my team. All right? I'm, I'm, I'm on their side. We're in this together. And it's almost as if God is saying, he looks at what his people are doing. He sees how they're fearing him and disobeying, or uh, not, not disobeying, they're obeying him. And God says to his prophet, make sure you tell them that I am in heaven, pleased with what they're doing, and I'm saying I'm with them. I'm with my people. Now, while their priorities were out of whack, God was not with them. They were standing against God, but now he's saying, I'm with them. Reminded me a lot of Matthew chapter 28. We have the same promise. Lo, I am with you even unto the end of the world. But you realize that promise is attached to a command, isn't it? What is the command? Go ye therefore and teach all nations. The Great Commission. God's promise of being with us, being on our side, on our team, so to speak, is directly linked to our obedience, doing what he's commanded us to do. The presence of God. You remember Moses in the book of Exodus? When God told him, I'm going to take you to the promised land, but because of the disobedience and the rebellion of the people, I'm not going with you. So go. Enjoy the fruits of your labor. Enjoy success. Enjoy relief from a lot of the problems that you're experiencing. Enjoy escape from the headache of the people, the only downside is my presence won't be with you. And do you remember what Moses said? Exodus 33, he said to God, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. I don't want the success. I don't want the relief from my problems. I don't want the escape from all the bad things that are happening. I want you. And how do we get God? You could say, I want God. Well, if God's presence is important to you, your obedience will tell the story. Your obedience will tell the story. Because when we obey, it is God that says to his people, I'm with you. I'm with you. God's presence, but also God's passion in verse 14. It says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. And the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the remnant of the people. He stirred them up. He awakened them. He excited them. He roused them up. This is a revival. Oh, we like that. The sound of that word. Wouldn't it be nice to experience a revival? We have revival meetings. So we meet every night of the week and we get together and we'd really like to experience revival. Exactly whatever that is. But we'd we'd really like to, to, to experience it. But before revival, there has to be obedience. Before revival came, before God stirred up the spirit, there was a choice to obey. There was a choice to make God's agenda their agenda, to make God a priority and the priority in their lives. And of course, when that happened, God stepped in. And this revival started all the way at the top. The governor the high priest, but the same passion was embraced all the way down every one of the people. It wasn't just, oh, the preacher's really excited about this. Boy, he really got passionate tonight. I don't know sure what got into him. Had a little bit too much caffeine or something. No, but it was, oh, that's important to him. That's important to me as well. God stirred them up. This is the compensation for obedience. God's presence, God's passion but also God's provision. To see this, hold your place here. Go back to the book of Ezra real quickly. We're we're almost done, I promise. Ezra chapter 5. Notice the provision of God. This, This is an amazing thing. Because we've seen that the people have made the decision, we are going to obey God. Now, as far as the circumstances, nothing has really changed as far as the landscape of obedience is concerned. It's not like there's been a decree from the government or something. There's not, not like been something evident other than the preaching of God's man saying, obey God, make me a priority. Nothing has changed. And the people decide 
in Ezra chapter 5. Look there in, in verse, uh, verse number 1. We won't read it, but they decide we're going to obey God. Notice what happens in verse 3. At the same time came to them Tatnai, the governor of this side of the river, and Shether Bonsnai and their companions, and said thus unto them, Who hath commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? Hey, what gives you the right to build this temple? We don't think you ought to be here. I remember shutting this whole thing down. Who do you think you are? And I like the response of the people in verse 4. It says, Then send we unto them after this manner. What are the names of the men that make this building? But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that they could not cause them to cease till the matter came to Darius. And then they returned answer by a letter concerning this matter. Here comes the enemies again. You thought we were done with them. We thought, boy, we're obeying God. All the enemies will disappear. Now they show up. The moment they start, they start knocking on the door. You shouldn't be doing this. And then they, they, uh, they, they employ the second grade tactic. Well, if you don't stop, I'm going to tell mom. We're going to tell the king. So, hmm. And that's what they did. They wrote a letter. Furiously wrote a letter. Sent it off to the king. These people are saying that they have a right to do this. We don't think they do. What's your, what do you say? What's your response? I'll spare reading all of this. You can do so in your own entertainment later on. Skip down to verse number 1 of chapter 6. It comes before Darius the king. And Darius the king made a decree. And the search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And there was found at Akmetha in the palace, that is the province of the Medes, a roll... And therein was, record, was a record thus written. We actually read those couple of verses that come next in this chapter. This was the decree of Cyrus. But skip down for time's sake to verse number 6. So after he quotes what was found in the official record, in verse 6 it says, Now therefore Tatnai, governor beyond the river, and Shetharbonsnai and your companions, uh, the Aphorsakites, which are beyond the, beyond the river, be ye far from hence. Translation. Get out of here. Get out of here. Let the work, I love verse 7, let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Moreover, I make a decree. What ye shall do to the, the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. Oh, by the way, since you bothered me, I've got a job I want you to do. This is what I want you guys to do. That of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, Forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. And that which they have need of, both of young bullocks and rams and lambs, for the burnt offerings of God, of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the God of heaven, and pray for the life of the king and of his sons. Also I made a decree, that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, uh, let him be hanged thereon, and let his house be made a dunghill for this. And the God that hath caused his name to dwell there, destroy all kings and people that shall put, their, or put to their hand to alter and destroy this house of God, which, which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree. Let it be done with speed. Can you imagine the people? Well, it's probably a little bit of trepidation as they're returning to the work. What's going to happen? What is the king going to say? Because before, in the previous administration, they got shut down. What is going to take place? You see what God does. But I want you to know, when did this happen? When did God provide? Was it before they obeyed? Or after they obeyed? It was after. God provided, but they needed to take the step of faith. Obedience first. Provision second. That's how God's economy works. I read this quote this week. Do what you can, and God will do what you can't. The power is there. Obedience is when we plug into it. So the power is there, perhaps, in your house. And you know what? There was supposed to be a picture there, John. I'm sorry. Somehow that didn't happen. Oh, well. The power is there on the house. You got all the outlets on the outside. You're putting up those Christmas lights, but you got to plug them in. 
The power is there, but as soon as you plug it in, as soon as you obey, all of a sudden, you see the provision that is made for you. And I like in Haggai, God is very specific. When did the people experience God's presence? When did the people receive God's reviving passion? When did they receive God's provision? Verse 15, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Very specific. Let me translate that for you. The day they decided to obey. It's about three weeks after Haggai first started preaching. It took a little bit of time. But the day they decided to obey, they experienced all of God's promise. So tonight, would you take a few moments to consider your obedience? Are there areas in your life of disobedience? There's a lot of obvious commands in the scriptures. Obey the gospel being the first one. Are there areas of disobedience? God says after salvation, there is baptism, the first step of obedience. There's no mystery here. This is the first step of obedience. And sometimes we just sort of gloss over looking for the college-level course on walking with God. Well, walking with God starts with obedience. You can't skip over that step. I know it's very simplistic. I know it just seems too basic. But it is the way that it is. God commands being faithful to His house. Whatever reason you might come up, come up with of why it's just more appropriate for you to, to stay home and it's easy for you just to watch the live stream or just catch the recording another time, I mean, you can explain it, put whatever veneer on it you want. It's still disobeying God. Are there areas of disobedience? God commands that He has gifted His servants, His children with spiritual gifts, and He intends for those spiritual gifts to be used in service to Him within the Lord's church. That's a command that ought to be obeyed. Are you doing your part? Are, are, are you serving? What's your ministry? God commands the preaching of the gospel. He says, go and, and, and teach all nations. God commands personal evangelism. But if we're looking for the secret of walking with God and, and the secret of making God the priority, it starts with obedience. Obeying that which is obvious. Obeying that which we already know. It's not glamorous. It's not flashy. It's rather simple. Are you doing what God has told you to do. God commands a tithe of His people. Are you obedient to what God has told you to do? You say, well, you know, I examine my life in you know, all of those major areas. I really believe I am being obedient. And that's, that's good. I hope you can say that. But then are there any areas of disobedience of the heart? Attitudes. Anger, bitterness. We can say, I want God to be the number one priority in my life. But if there's areas of, of disobedience in the heart, my obedience is betraying my real priorities. The actions of my life are demonstrating what my priorities are. Can we take heart tonight from God's people? They heard a very difficult and pointed message from God. And they said, you know what? We need to do something. We need to get busy. We need to obey God. And God did a marvelous work. Which means for us as God's people, if we take the pointed rebuke, if, if we take maybe the... It does hurt a little bit when we consider. We don't like looking in the mirror and seeing everything that's wrong. But when we see it and we say, you know what? I need to do something about it. Perhaps that's just the simple little thing. Taking a simple little step. But I'm going to do something about it. We all do something. And God shows up. 
He blesses us with His presence. He blesses us with His power, His reviving Spirit. And He blesses us by providing all that we need to obey Him. Consider your obedience tonight. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I hope you'll take a moment. Ask those two questions. Are there any areas of obvious disobedience in my life? Ask God that question. And then are there any areas of disobedience in my heart? And consider, what is a simple step of obedience I can take perhaps even this very night? What's a simple step I could take? It may not be flashy. It may not be big. It may just be go up to the mountain. Take the first step. Go to the mountain. Bring wood. Build my house. You take a moment and talk to God tonight. Ask him to search you and show you how you need to respond to his message tonight.